0: The 59th psalm. It's uh, to the chief musician set to do not destroy. It's a michtam of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish the nations. Do not be merciful any to any wicked transgressors, Selah. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying, which they speak, consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be and let them know that, the, that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. And that evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Okay, we have uh, Exodus 14, it's verses 10 through 20. It's entitled, Stand Still and See the Salvation of the Lord. So 14, starting in verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. In America, at least to this point, Christians have been safe and secure in their religious life. We've been allowed to worship freely, believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, and to openly proclaim that anywhere and everywhere. Now, of course, with our current leadership, that's quickly changing. Our president is hostile to our faith, and he is hostile to the values which established this country, which are based on our faith. For us, The road will become difficult, and we may face times of great trouble if we're willing to continue in our walk with the Lord. His treasonous acts aside, though, this has been the standard for many of the world's Christians all along. They have had to choose between Christ and death, and between the kingdom of Christ and that of the world. And for many, the choice was easy. I choose Jesus. For others, their religion is only so strong as the next threat that they face. In the movie, The Kingdom of Heaven, the bishop and patriarch of Jerusalem was faced with death as the Muslim forces under Saladin came against the city. His words to the knight defending the city were, Convert now, repent later. The knight's response was, You've taught me a lot about religion, your eminence. Today's verses partially encompass a chiasm that I found about seven years ago. The middle or anchor of that chiasm contains the words, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Israel had seen the 10 plagues. They had received release from their bondage. They had been directed by a pillar of cloud and a fire. And yet as soon as they start to face a minor threat in comparison to the works they had seen, they lose faith and they began to accuse Moses. Is this the strength of your faith? To what extent are you willing to stand up for Jesus Christ? Millions and millions of Christians have been willing to die for him and they will receive their reward. They continue to be slaughtered even now around the world due to the outright negligence and belligerence against Christians by the president of the United States. And if he gets his way, we will soon face the same under him in our own land. What will be your answer? Will you be like the bishop of Jerusalem and say, convert now and repent later? Or will you be like Clint Eastwood and say, go ahead, make my day. Me? Send me home to Abba. Go ahead, make my day. Our text verse today comes from Jonah, the second chapter of Jonah, and it's the ninth verse. It's one of my very favorite verses in the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. From the beginning to the end, this is what the Bible proclaims. He saves us despite ourselves, and he continues to save us despite ourselves, and he will carry us to his heavenly home. All who come to him will be saved. Have faith in that, and should your faith be tested, even to death, tell them to bring it on. I have a promise which is found in God's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have uh, three thoughts for you today, as I normally do. The first is the salvation of the Lord. It's verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, and when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. The last verse that we looked at last week said this, so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Hahiroth, before Baal Ziphon. This then explains the layout of the situation to us. They are at the sea at a place called the mouth of the gorges. What this means is that there is a body of water too large to traverse to the east. There were gorges to the west, implying a mountain range, and even if there was a highway which continued down along the banks of the Red Sea, it would have been very narrow. A flight for two million or so people would have meant that they would be cut down by the pursuing Egyptians as they fled. Further, there are eventually mountains which come right up to the sea along the coast, and so they would be blocked from a further flight south. This is the setting and the battle conditions in which they found themselves. In all ways, they had their proverbial backs against the wall, and the Egyptian army was coming. In other words, under normal circumstances, it is an impossible situation. There would be no exit, and there would only be the expectation of death or recapture. Verse 10 continues, So they were very afraid. One question that some scholars have thrown out in order to try to diminish the truth of the Bible concerning the recorded numbers of people that the Exodus account claims is how could a group of people consisting of over 600,000 fighting aged men be very afraid of an army which could be no more than a third of its size? Supposedly, there would actually be no comparison in the size of the force, and it would seem that Israel would easily overcome and destroy Egypt. Well, there are a multitude of reasons why this is more than an unsound attack against the narrative. First, it is Israel who is boxed in with no real means of escape. Secondly, Israel is hampered by the fact that they have children, they have the aged, they have women, animals, and all of their supplies to deal with. Third, Israel would have been unarmed, Egypt would have been heavily armed, wearing military garments and possessing chariots, as well as all of their, you know, spears and javelins and everything else. And fourth, Israel was unaccustomed to battle. The Egyptians were highly trained soldiers prepared for war. The history of warfare is replete with smaller forces destroying larger forces because of training, available weapons, and experience. As I said, under any normal circumstances this was an impossible situation. But these were not normal circumstances as the next words show us. Verse 10 going on, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The very fact that Israel cried out to the Lord shows that they felt these were not normal circumstances concerning their plight. Rather, they were normal circumstances concerning their faith. Their plight was completely under control. Their faith was completely out of control. Those who knew that the Lord was capable of Helping took advantage of the moment to call on him. Those who didn't cried out to him in anguish. As Matthew Henry says about this, some cried out unto the Lord. Their fear led them to pray, and that was well. God brings us into straits that he may bring us to our knees. Crying out to the Lord, though, does not always mean that strong faith is present. It simply means that there is nowhere else to cry out to. It is no different than the atheist who cries out, "'Oh, God!' when their child is dying at the scene of a car accident. Sometimes the straits we face are a means actually of molding the little faith that we do have. Apparently, though, Israel did not learn this, but instead redirected what should have been faith into anger at God's messenger. Verse 11, Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? There's an irony in these words which needs to be considered. Egypt, the land of Egypt, was steeped in the worship of the dead. The bodies of the Egyptians were mummified as a means of obtaining eternal life. The graves of the Egyptians were then considered the place where life continued. Egypt was a land full of tombs, and there was a necropolis in every single city. Rather than such a place of burial in the land of the tombs, Israel felt that they would perish in the wilderness. It shows a forgetfulness of the promises made to the patriarchs and those which were repeated to them by the Lord through Moses. It also shows the absurd nature of them having brought up the bones of the patriarchs from Egypt. If it was the great place of hope and promise that they are implying, then it would have been better to leave the bones of their fathers there. Further, it cannot be said that they have faith in the Lord but lacked faith in Moses because of a bad choice of leading them to their present location. Scholars do attempt to find this a reasonable explanation, but it is not. In Exodus 13, it said this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And in just a few more verses, it will acknowledge that the pillar is still there with them at this time. The Lord is leading Moses, and Moses is following him ahead of the people. An attack on Moses, then, is an attack against the leading of the Lord. Although a seeming diversion from the present plight, it is not unjustified to say that those who rebel against the properly taught word of the Lord are really only rebelling against the Lord if for no other reason than to ensure that you know your Bible, it is a good enough one there to soberly consider doing so. All right, verse 11 continues. Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? These words show a complete failure to remember the events of the previous days. They observed the Passover. They were entirely spared, and yet Egypt collectively suffered and mourned. While they were leaving the land of Egypt in the moonlight, The shrieks and howls of death would have permeated the night air. At that time, the joy of the ending pain, the toil, the bondage, it was fresh on their minds. And now just a couple days since then, they have forgotten that they willingly marched with Moses and did so with all of their possessions and the promise that the Lord would be with them. And he was, as is evidenced by the pillar that they followed. Verse 12, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Lang says this, the exaggeration of their recollection of a doubt formerly expressed reaches the pitch of falsehood. In other words, the people are misremembering and even lying concerning the situation. In Exodus chapter 4, when Moses presented himself to the people with the signs from the Lord, this was recorded. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. It is true that after that, times became difficult, but there is no record at all of them asking Moses to leave them in order to serve the Egyptians. There were times when they wouldn't heed Moses. Another time the officers were angry with him, but they are never recorded as desiring to continue to serve the Egyptians. As a point of interest, this portion of verse 12 is obviously very important to understand because this is where the chiasm centers on its words. I came across this one in 2008, and it shows a picture of those who would rather serve the world than the Lord. In other words, it is a classic picture of those who are called, who turn back to the world, and yet whom the Lord still delivers because of his immense love and mercy. If you look in uh, the A at the beginning at the end, it says the pillar of cloud and fire led the way, and at the end it says the pillar of cloud went behind them. In B, it says, harden Pharaoh's heart to gain honor over him. In B, it says, harden the Egyptians to gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army. In C, Israel lifted their eyes and they were afraid. In the lower C, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In D, to die in the wilderness. Again, in D, we should die in the wilderness. E, which is verse 14, 11, why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? And E, it would have been better for us to to serve the Egyptians, and then it anchors on this verse, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Verse 12 continues, for it would have been better that w- for us that we serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. For those who do not know Christ, service to the devil appears better than death and obscurity. The Lord needs to remove this from them. If his miracles and wonders on Egypt were enough to convince them of who he is, then bringing them to their present straits would not have been needed. But the people still lacked faith in following the Lord because they still lacked sound faith in him. When one knows the Lord, even death in obscurity is but a sweet moment of rest. Better to die in the wilderness than to continue life in Egypt. But the Lord intends neither for his people at this time. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. In contrast to the cries and the complaints of the people, Moses stands firm and provides a series of thoughts which resonate throughout all the rest of Scripture. He first gives words of fortitude. He says, Do not be afraid. The first time these words were spoken was by the Lord to Abraham, way back in Genesis 15, verse 1. Do not be afraid. They are spoken time and time and time again throughout both Testaments, and they are spoken the very last time in the Bible to John when he received his vision from the Lord in Revelation 1, verse 17. Do not be afraid. Throughout the Bible, the people of God are admonished to not be in fear, but to trust the Lord. Moses repeats these words now to the fearful masses of Israel. Verse 13 continues, Stand still. Hit Yassvu. Stand still. The words here are intended to refocus the individual away from self to something or to someone else. Instead of necessary action by the person, there will be peace for them while action is taken for the person. There was no need to flee away or to move towards action. They could simply stand fast. Verse 13 continues, and see the salvation of the Lord. Yireu et Yeshua Yehovah. This is now the second time in the Bible that the word Yeshua Has been used. The first time was in Genesis 49 during Jacob's blessing upon his sons. Thereafter blessing Dan and before blessing Gad, he cried out, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Jacob anticipated Yeshua. Now Moses promises Yeshua. Salvation would come and it would come from the Lord. The word Yeshua, and you may know this and you may not, but it is the Hebrew name of Jesus. Thus, this verse is both a prophetic picture and a prophetic pun. In picture, the Lord would work salvation for Israel, a salvation which Paul explains in 1 Corinthians actually pictures the work of Christ. In prophetic pun, these words say, and see the Jesus of Jehovah. It is an anticipation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ when the Lord came to dwell among men. Verse 13 continues, which he will accomplish for you today. The promise is made. There would be no defeat in a hopeless battle. There would be no long siege against the people, and there would be no putting off for later what was coming. The Lord would act, and it would be ha-yom, today. The act would come, and it would be complete in its scope. Verse 13 going on, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The promise here is better worded as Young's literal translation of the Bible translates it. He says, as ye have seen the Egyptians today. In other words, you shall never see the Egyptians in the same way again. The reason for this is that they will in fact see the Egyptians again. They're gonna see them washed up dead on the shores of the Red Sea and they will encounter Egypt in the future, but they will never see them in this manner again. Israel will be perfectly delivered from Egypt once and forever, and it would be without any further delay. The faith of Moses in this verse is repeated by the king of Israel many, many years later, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, actually. This is uh, maybe, I don't know, three, four, five hundred years later. And his words to the people before a great army which was coming against them are so similar to those of Moses that it seems he was actually recalling this very account from the Exodus to inspire his people. These are his words. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah in Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat trusted the Lord with the same faith as Moses and he was rewarded for that faith. The enemies were destroyed and the people of Judah, without having engaged in the battle at all, were able to plunder the dead of an immense amount of wealth. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Moses promises that while Israel stands still, the Lord will act on their behalf. The Hebrew word for shall hold your peace signifies not just silence and speech, but a complete cessation of action as well. Everything about the words in verses 13 and 14 shows that salvation is of the Lord from the beginning all the way to the end. Moses has shown them that they will not participate in their salvation and that the Lord will work independently of any help of any kind. There is no part in the honor of what happens to be ascribed to the people. Instead, it is a work of the Lord alone. These two verses for Israel picture the process of salvation in the individual believer in Christ. They can be summed up perfectly in the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 2, where it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Israel did nothing to merit the favor of the Lord, and they did nothing to secure their salvation from the bonds of Egypt. Instead, he did everything, thus setting the pattern of salvation for all of humanity for all of time. Israel seemed hemmed in by the land and the sea and Pharaoh, and yet the Lord delivered them. Humans are hemmed in by sin and corruption and the devil, and yet the Lord is there to deliver us. As Matthew Henry says about this verse, he says, if God brings us his people into straits, he will find a way to bring them out. Moses, why have you brought us out here? We have nowhere to go and the enemy is on his way. This is the end of us now, we fear. Yes, our end has come this very day. Were there no graves left in Egypt for us to die there? Did we need to come to this place to be buried? We're stuck at this spot by the sea and you don't even seem to care. Are there ships coming by which we can be ferried? Do not be afraid. Instead, stand still See the salvation of the Lord, a marvelous work indeed. The sight you see will bring the greatest thrill. He shall deliver you and he shall do it with speed. Our second thought today is, so I will gain honor over Pharaoh. It's verses 15 through 18. Verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? The words here actually perplex scholars because there's no prayer or anguish noted as stemming from Moses. And yet these words suddenly appear. And so scholars will often insert an unspoken prayer into their theology of what Moses is doing, or even a spoken prayer while he was out alone talking to the Lord. But I believe this is unnecessary. There is no reason to assume that the Lord is speaking to Moses about Moses. The word cry here is singular. And so it appears to be Moses who is crying to the Lord. But Moses is the representative of the people. Therefore, their cumulative cry of verse 10 is equated to the singular cry of Moses here. And the reason why I believe this is because in Joshua chapter seven, something very similar occurs. One of the people of Israel had committed a transgression and because of it, all of Israel was judged through defeat and battle. In verse six there, it says this, "'Then Joshua tore his clothes "'and fell to the earth on his face "'before the ark of the Lord until evening. "'He and the elders of Israel.'" And they put dust on their heads. Later in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Joshua as the representative of the people. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you thus lie on your face? Though all of the elders were there on their face before the ark, the Lord only spoke to Joshua. It is in the singular. And in order to get them to act, we read this in verse 13. It said, get up, sanctify the people and uh, say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. The Lord directed Joshua to turn the petitions of the elders into action. The same was true with his predecessor, Moses. The two accounts are very similar, and yet they have contrasts. One was based on a lack of faith of the people concerning the ability of the Lord. The other was based on disobedience to the word of the Lord. One was prior to their salvation from the Egyptians and the giving of the law. The other was after their reception of the law and being brought into the covenant. The people's lack of faith could be compared to Peter's lack of faith before the crucifixion. And the willful act of the offender in Joshua could be compared to Ananias and Sapphira after the giving of the Holy Spirit. Joshua was there to witness both in the Old Testament Peter was there for both in the New Testament. The two accounts contrast, and yet they confirm that when action is necessary, action is expected. Thus the Lord tells Moses to act, just as he will say the same to Joshua many years later. Verse 15 continues, Tell the children of Israel to go forward. The explanation for these words will be realized in the next verse. The congregation was to pack up its camp and march to the very shore of the sea It is as if they were to expect a fleet of ships to come and pick them up and take them to safety. But if that is what they thought, they would be wrong. What would occur would be much more marvelous than the assistance of a fleet of ships from a distant land. Verse 16, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The rod or mate is the rod of God which Moses had carried with him all along. It was there on the sacred mountain with him. It was later presented to the Israelites and then to Pharaoh. It was used to strike the land and the waters and the heavens with plagues against Egypt. And now he is asked to stretch it out once again. This time it would be over the sea. The rod symbolizes the power of God because it bears the authority of the one it represents. Moses represented the Lord because he bore the rod. Thus the power to effect the miracle was present with him. In stretching the rod over the sea, the sea would be divided. The word of the Lord would become a reality through the action. Verse 16 going on, And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Of these words, the scholar Benson notes, he says, The same power could have congealed the waters for them to pass over, but infinite wisdom chose rather to divide the waters for them to pass through. For that way of salvation is always pitched upon which is most humbling. Although I agree that the Lord could have congealed the waters and so the people could have walked over them, I don't fully agree with his reasoning. It wasn't just more humbling to walk through the waters than over them. It was one, a miracle which would be remembered much more poignantly. Two, it would require more faith to walk between walls of water than over a solid mass. And three, it is intended to make a picture of the work of Christ. As Paul notes in 1 Corinthians, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Above all, baptism is an act of faith. I believe that Christ died for me and I am following him in his burial. The people required faith in the Lord's continued sustaining power over the walls of water on either side of them. They were to engage in a type of baptism by walking through the sea as they did. And there is also a parallel here to the creation account itself. The word for dry ground in this verse is Yabashah. It was first used in Genesis 1 verse 9 where it says this, Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so out of the chaos of the seas would come the order and firmness of the dry ground through an act of creation. Likewise, out of the chaos of the sea would come order and firmness of the dry ground in an act of redemption. As always in the Bible, the pattern is consistent. There is creation and then there is redemption. Verse 17, and then I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. This is the last time, the very last time that harden is used in the Exodus account. The last time it was used only of Pharaoh, which was in verse eight. But now it is being applied to the hearts of the Egyptians as well. The Lord is stating that he will be the one to harden their hearts. However, the means of that hardening has to be drawn out from the context of the passage. And it is a context which shows that it is the form of the miracle itself by which the Lord will draw the Egyptians into following Israel. In other words, it will be an act of the Lord which passively draws Egypt in. They will exercise their own free will heading into the waters of destruction. The Lord simply knew that they would follow this avenue. And there's a specific reason for this, which is again repeated, verse 17 going on. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. The word for honor here is chaved. It indicates honor, glory, or acclaim, but it comes from the idea of weight or heaviness. In this, then, there's a certain pun which is going on. The Lord will receive glory over Pharaoh and his people, but it will come from the crushing weight of the seas that come down upon them. Verse 18, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen this verse takes us right back to Exodus chapter 7. He said there, way back in Exodus 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. This was later defined by Uh, Earlier in this chapter in exodus 14 it said then I will harden pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them And I will gain honor over pharaoh and over his army that the egyptians may know that I am the lord And they did so the logical progression of what has been spoken is coming to its fulfillment The lord has incrementally worked through these many chapters to slowly reveal his glory It is a marvelous study of wisdom In fact, it's brilliant but what else could one expect from the mind and the secret counsels of the Lord? Moses, get the people up and tell them to go forward, even to the edge of the sea. They're a marvelous miracle to you I will show, a mighty de- deed which will set the people free. They won't have to swim on or sail on a boat, nor will they walk on the water. That is reserved for me. But they will cross over. No, not with a rubber ducky float. Just lift up your rod and stretch it out over the sea. The waters will be divided and they will pass through. It will be as if on dry ground. Don't you believe me? A marvelous thing for Israel I will do. By the strength of my hand, I will divide the Red Sea. And that brings us to our third and final thought today. From guide to guard, safety in the Lord. It's verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. In Exodus 13, verse 21, it said that the Lord, meaning Jehovah, went before the people in the pillar. Now he is called Malach ha-Elohim. Literally, he is called the angel of the God. There's a definite article in front of God here, which has not been seen in the Bible for 10 chapters. There is specificity, which is asking to be considered, not passed over. In Exodus 3, verse 2, the angel of Jehovah appeared in the burning bush. Then in Exodus three six and three eleven, he is called Ha Elohim, the God. The words are not random, but they're particularly used to highlight that the angel of Jehovah is the angel of the God, and that he is Jehovah, and that he is God. And finally we are shown that there is only one God, and he is it. With Israel now placed directly in front of the sea, and with their inability to go forward any further at this time, the angel of the God, who is the Lord, now moves behind the camp to protect them from their enemies. When the seas are parted, they will not need him to lead them, as there's only going to be one means of egress. And instead of their front guide, he now becomes their rear guard. The same type of interchangeable names and concepts for the Lord are actually found in the words of Isaiah. Listen to what he says here in Isaiah 52 and then in Isaiah 58. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And then again in Isaiah 58, he says, Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall bring spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In those Isaiah verses, he is called both the Lord and the God of Israel. And he is both the one who goes before the people and the one who is their rear guard. In picture, he is Jesus who went before us in death and who will come behind us until we have reached our heavenly shore. We are always cared for as the protected people of God because of the presence of the Lord. Verse 19 continues, And the pillar of cloud went... From before them and stood behind them. Some scholars try to distinguish the Lord from the pillar of cloud by separating the two clauses of this verse. This is not correct. The two clauses are being written in parallel and the entities are synonymous. The Lord is represented by the pillar of cloud. When the invisible Lord moves, the visible manifestation of his presence moves with him. This is comparable to the burning bush, which Moses beheld. The light which emanated from it was intended for Moses to see and to understand. The same is true with the pillar for Israel and against Egypt. Verse 20, so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. The word it should not be used in this verse. I don't like this translation. The Lord is not an it. And the context shows that both the Lord and the pillar are being referred to. Rather, the word "veyabol" simply means, and came. That may sound nitpicky on my part, but context drives translation, and the context is that this is the Lord revealed in the cloud. It must have been an incredible sight for the Israelites to see the cloud move from the sea to their rear guard and come to rest between them and the Egyptians. But it was another saving grace as they are being prepared for their final step of the exodus. And that's why I chose that song before church today, Whom Shall I Fear by Chris Tomlin. Because he says he'll go before us and he's there behind us. And we need to remember this in our own lives. The Lord is there directing our steps and he's there to make sure that we won't fall back. He is there with us. Be comforted in that thought. Verse 20 finishes with these words. Thus it was a cloud in darkness to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. This entire verse can be translated without the word it, okay? Young's does an excellent job of his translation of it here. Here's how he says it. And cometh in between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and the cloud and the darkness are, and he enlighteneth the night, and the one hath not not drawn near unto the other all night. Young's thoughtful translation of these words shows both the sense of the splendor of the Lord and his ability to use the same medium to work for the benefit of one group and to the detriment of the other. John Lang shows a spiritual connotation to the physical description of the words of this verse. He says, that which gives light to the believers constitutes nocturnal darkness for the unbelievers and that which is the irremovable barrier between the two. This is a truth which is seen more and more and more in the world today. As the end times have certainly arrived, there is spiritual darkness, which permeates the mind of the unbelievers, and yet it is the same thing which provides light to the believers. It is the word of God. The dividing line is set, and it is found in the word of God, the Bible, which reveals the word of God, Jesus. Matthew Henry further explains this thought for us. He says the word and providence of God have a black and dark side towards sin and sinners, but a bright and pleasant side toward the people of the Lord. He who divided between light and darkness in Genesis 1-4, allotted darkness to the Egyptians and light to the Israelites. Such a difference there will be between the inheritance of the saints in light and that utter darkness which will be on the portion of hypocrites forever. It is good to know that the Lord is with us. It's good to be familiar with his words and to understand that spiritual darkness which is all around us. But lest we somehow think of ourselves as having accomplished this salvation on our own or that someone else around us doesn't deserve it, we can look to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter one. There he tells us that it is the Lord who delivered us. He says, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And because this is so, we need to remember that we were also once in darkness. The world around us may be offensive and gross, and it is. We see that every week in the Prophecy Update. But the world around us needs Jesus. So let's remember this, and let's pray for the lost, Let's be willing to share the good news and always be prepared with a defense for why we believe what we believe. And just in case you have never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I would ask for just one more moment to share with you how you can move from spiritual darkness, which does encompass you, into his marvelous light. And it's all found on what this is picturing right here. The giving of Jesus Christ for the people of the world, his life, which leads us through the dispensation of the law because he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And then his death, which took him into the grave and which he broke the bonds of by coming out of the grave because he had no sin of his own. This is the message of the Bible. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we call on Jesus Christ as Lord, we will be forgiven of the sins that we have in our flesh. And we will Be right with God. We will be deemed righteous before God, not because we deserve it, but because he sees his son when he sees us. He's looking through the lens of the perfection of Christ who fulfilled that law for us, all right? So make sure that you tell people this. Yes, the world is gross, and yes, people are an offense to us, but at the same time, they need to have Jesus Christ, and so we need to keep telling them, even if it's difficult to do. Just tell your neighbor. Tell the people who need Jesus. Our closing verse today comes from Ephesians 5. It's verses 8 through 11. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. All right? Uh, Next week I have a sermon for you that we have been waiting for now. over 40 sermons. I say the same thing to you every week and uh, next week it's going to be fulfilled. It's Exodus 14 verses 21 through 31. What a glorious thing it will be. The sermon is entitled The Parting of the Red Sea. That'll be our 41st Exodus sermon and as I say to you each week in anticipation of that moment the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you So, even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So, follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Okay. Our poem today is called The Salvation of the Lord. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, a sight that brought fear. The Egyptians marched after them, it seemed their demise. So, they were very afraid of the coming sword. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses in their duress, because there were no in Egypt no graves, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is this how a leader behaves? Why have you so dealt with us? Our hope is stripped since your intent was to bring us up out of Egypt. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt? What nerve saying, let us alone that we may the Egyptians serve. For it would have been better for us to serve without duress The Egyptians, then we should die in the wilderness. And do not be afraid, Moses to the people did say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. I pronounce to you now a prophetic word. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Their trouble will cease. The Lord will fight for you in a glorious way and you you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, get out to the sea. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry land through the midst of the sea without getting wet. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them in. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh, and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself in a marvelous show over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. This is my word. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and behind them went. Then the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them, a marvelous event. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one and to the other light it did dispel. So that the one did not come near the other all that night, the Egyptians had darkness, but Israel had light. And such is true with the world and me and you. If you have Jesus, you have the light. But if you don't, unfortunately, it's true. You have only darkness, pitch black as night. But if you call out to him for his saving grace upon you, light will arise and it will shine. The light of God is revealed in his face. Call out to him now, say, Jesus is mine. In him, there is no darkness, not at all. In him, there is only God's wondrous glory. So on his name today, be sure to call and be a part of God's glorious gospel story. And we shall, as a redeemed, praise him for eternal years with joy and shouting of heartfelt cheers. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wondrous story that you are there providing salvation for your people. You're directing them where, should they, where they should go and you're behind them, taking care of them so that they're not attacked from behind. And I know this is true for each and every person here. We all have trials, we all have troubles, and we all think that, oh my goodness, this is terrible. But you're there and you're with us and you're leading us and you are behind us, keeping us from attack. We had that happen with Kelly Carlin. You were there calling her home and you were behind her, pushing her up to the heavenly glory. Each one of us here today is in some type of duress. Look into our hearts and give us comfort and help us to get through those things. And Lord, I do pray for all of the people that are out there right now that are traveling, that aren't in the church today, so many people that are gone and that will miss this service that maybe they can tune in and see it or at least have fond memories of Kelly in their heart. And I pray for all of the people on YouTube that watch these sermons and the people that may be watching streaming online as well, that they will understand that you are God and that you are there to protect us in all ways and to guide us each step of the way. You have us exactly where you want us. And thank you for that reassurance. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. We get it from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul writes these wonderful words to us. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Then he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam ha lechem min ha'aretz." Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, Malachi Bore Borei Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord, Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord, Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come to this table. We thank you for what it signifies in the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we're remembering that day until he comes again to deliver us from our own life of death which is sure to come for each of us unless you come first. Lord, we long for that day when we see your beautiful face and we walk in your glorious presence for all of eternity, the redeemed of the Lord. Thank you for that sure promise. It's as sure as the waters that open for the people who pass through the Red Sea. We shall pass through until we reach the heavenly shore. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.